Welcome to the Lost Signals Reviews, the American Film Institute's Top 100, where we critique the supposed 100 greatest American movies of all time. Join us as we decide if they're worthy of the Mox Top 100. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Lost Signals discusses and reviews uh, the AFI. Today we are doing number 29, the film noir classic, Double Indemnity. I'm Jonathan Ian Manzer, here with Scott Thurla. Yeah, 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 see. Christopher Morgan. Baby, we're in this for you, baby, baby. And <laughs> Cowboy Stephen Rossi. Hey, all you cool kids. <laughs> Made that wrong, um, wrong timeline. <laughs> so <laughs> and wrong genre. So this film has uh, more tricks than a carload of monkeys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with the funny logline, we're passing it over to uh, Scott Villa. Well, of course, the insurance man always rings twice, or honks the horn three times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> good, yeah. But uh, anyway, I'm going to go on with the plot. An insurance salesman who has been spending likely an entire decades wondering. If I was going to rob my company, this is how I would do it. Gets the excuse when he meets a lonely housewife who wants to murder her husband and claim insurance. And they go through with it only to find out that uh, Edward G. Robinson is on the case as he breaks meticulously breaks down their meticulous plan to <laughs> commit murder. It is, was it Dial M for Murder? Yeah. It is a heist film. And it is one of the best film noir picks out there. I really enjoy this work because you're seeing it from the point of view of the what would traditionally be an antagonist of a proto-film noir. He is working through all of the ways he's going to succeed at this. We watch him pull it off. And then we watch as his boss... <laughs> does reverse uno and <laughs> just starts deconstructing his entire plot in front of him. And the tension is absolutely beautiful. You know, it's going to fail from the beginning. They set that up. You're just waiting for the shoe to drop. There's the red herrings throughout. And I think it is an entertaining film. Uh, and I think it, it's rightfully known as perhaps the best of the traditional noir sets. And I agree with that fully. So I'm looking at a actually a fairly strong three just from how well crafted the narrative is. So that might have convinced me. I was coming here with a very strong two, certainly. Like, and I said to you, like, I probably could easily enough be convinced of a three. And I think the fact that yes, it it holds the template, like it uses it, it builds upon it, and in fact, possibly is one of the progenitors of it, really. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen Demo Indemnity. I heard of it, like I just knew vaguely, you know, what it was about is you know, the classic noir from 1944, I believe. So yeah, like as the plot unfolds, I think it does pace itself out extremely well very nicely like there might have been one maybe two moments or instances in which i was like eh but those like the minorest of cracks and nitpicks i don't think and on retrospect i think it's totally uh overwhelmed by the um quality of the rest of the plot so i'm probably looking at a three as well like a solid three but it just works it holds together they explain all the elements and a lot of it maybe will be um parsed out into other questions but yeah like you said for now i think i'm looking at a three so good guys yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I think it's really well done. There's a real interesting through line throughout the entire movie. Like you said, there's a, the red herrings uh, that they have. Like, I love the part where the car won't start. 
uh, too. And it's like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. But then it just starts, you know. Like, there's a lot of like really well done di- like dialogue and and just very noir speechifying throughout this uh, movie, and it's freaking great. <laughs> I just remember like watching it and like. So some of the movies that we've watched recently that are on the AFI top 100, I have been like rolling my eyes at. And like the, finally we have one totally. that's like, oh, this is like old timey, like it's of its time, but it also feels real. And like this, this script is good. Like it's not like everything from back in the day just sucked <laughs> or like had this like feeling of being out of time, you know. To be fair, this was a novel and then Raymond Chandler. Yeah. Raymond, yeah, Raymond Chandler is so you can see his uh, grimy uh, noir fingerprints all yeah. over uh, the script. But that's not that's a dialogue. I'm well, just saying and, that. And, and the story, though. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but and and you're right. That does, but, but that does like help the story, help grease the wheels of the story, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and Billy Wilder does a great job with this one. I really dig his stuff. Other than I guess some like it hot for the most part, but. Uh, yeah, uh, three for plot. It was great. I loved it the entire time I was watching it. Yeah, I was trying to, I was on the cusp of a two or three um, because there's some other stuff that I'm going to parse, you know, because this is an incredibly well-paced film, which is, is unfortunately, it, 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 to the amount of times you have to actually call that out really says a lot about, you know, the crap that we're subjected to. I remember seeing this when I was a kid. I, it does not feel like it's an hour and 47 minutes. Yeah. I quite enjoyed it. Uh, there's a, you know, it's that little nagging bit of like the, the sexism certain here, here and there, but I'm, I'm often loath to say a product of its time, but then again, nobody in this film is awesome. So uh, it kind of evens out. So uh, Edward G. Robinson is awesome, no matter how you cut it. I mean, he's fucking brilliant. Um, Everybody else in here is pretty much a horrible person anyway. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a three. It's a really solid narrative. It's quite good. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, and just before we go to themes in terms of the sexism, yeah, yeah, it's there. But also, like, uh, Phyllis is on par badass, like, scheming motherfucker as anybody else in this movie. Like. She is awesome as She's far as like a, Daisy or whatever. Yeah. Well, like, I, I mean, if you want to even call her a villain goes like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely not mash where it's just complete misogynistic right. horseshit. I mean, this is kind of a product at the time, but everybody is kind of devious and is a horrible person in their own right. So. Yeah. But I, Edward G. I would also say that most of the women in this, uh, their, their lack of agency is addressed because of, the stereotypes of the time. Uh, Phyllis is a housewife. She doesn't want to be a housewife and she's doing everything she can. Um, Same with Lola. Uh, uh, yeah, Lola uh, is stuck in a, a, with a, a downing father and she breaks out. So yeah, they they have a lot of agency to them. They just, their circumstances, what, uh, yeah. but I just want to say that I saw oceans 11 uh, because it's on Netflix now uh, randomly the other day. And my God, someone should have sued from Double Indemnity, because I just want to point out how much the first half of this film is a heist film, where you have your red herrings uh, of like, oh, they're going to get caught here? No. And then it turns into a film noir for the second half. So it's actually, I think that's why the pacing works so well, is that it's actually bending, or it 
almost codified in a way a genre that would come later but also adapted kind of the dark turns in there yeah so i actually was very impressed by it anyway chris onto you themes well it's a noir film and it's a heist film and it's uh about betrayal and it's about basically who's stabbing who in the back at any given time. Um, I do like the fact that, as you said, the way the narrative's constructed, you don't pull any punches. So themes is, it's kind of hard to nail down because this was at the be- this was kind of in the beginning of the noir. So to say anything, all the themes are cliched is kind of like, well, putting it into perspective. Because of, um, because of this? <laughs> yeah, You're because crazy. of this. Um, but you know, it's, it's, as you said, it's a heist. It's about betrayal. It's about, I guess, in in some ways, it is looking for agency. Um, you know, to because as we just pointed out, it's just like in order to the uh, what's the daughter's name? Lola. Lola. She doesn't really have any agency because she's caught between. She's never had any kind of independence, so she's caught between her father and her. She's trying to have as much as she can, given her. Yeah, but um. Phyllis, however, you know, she's, she's a black widow, but it's because of, you know, her position. It is because of the way women were positioned in those days. So maybe, maybe she just likes to kill people. Who knows? That's, that's, <laughs> that's cool. I was going to say, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, pretty clear, but <laughs> now, um, so it, it, like I said, I, I, it's hard for me to pin down certain things that aren't just aspects of this thing, but I think it deals with everything um, fairly well. I mean, like, as I just discussed, it's the, the times kind of the greed is always, is is an ageless thing. So I was going to say it's the time for characters to find agency, but that's, you know, greed and duplicity, you know, so, but I'm going to give it a one. Uh, I'm going to build off of what you said, because you're right about greed. It's traditional film noirs are inherently morality tales. You're watching bad people try to get away with bad things and end up getting punished for it. And this one is actually very rife with terrible people uh, uh, who get their comeuppance almost deservedly. Phyllis ends up getting uh, shot by uh, Walter. Walter wants to escape by death, but he's caught in the system. But part of the morality thing is Walter is an intelligent man with a decent job. But he has ambitions beyond that. He thinks he's smarter than the system is and thinks he can outwild the system. And then it's not the system that beats him. We show, we're shown that the system itself, that the head of the uh, insurance company uh, is an idiot. It's Edward G. Robinson's uh, keys who yeah. uh, is uh, the moral force in here, who mm. is just outsmarts him. And it is... Uh, so that there, there is that end of trying to establish, give us a fulfillment of chaos, but also reinforce order. That's what film noir, traditional film noir is about. Neo-noir is about the chaos. Uh, traditional film noir is about uh, order in a sense. So it's effective. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to build upon what you said, what both of you now said. So that's what I noticed the most, that yes. And this, I think, Chris, is where I'm justified with using the sign of the times because it's... You know, just about the end of World War II in America. And so bad people are doing bad shit for bad uh, reasons, right? But in the end, they all get caught and they all get like justice is served in a sense. Now that is, of course, the morality tale there, like the morality part of it. Now, yes, as we moved on, as film and society moved on from that, 
it gets a little more cynical, but I think that was the, certainly the intention of this film and others like it uh, with this story. And yes, it does touch on a few other things like the agency of women, you know, at, at the time and the place as well. And like how they, people like it could feel trapped in their situations. And that certainly spurs like, you know, their whole conspiratorial plot. Um, and that I think will go to characters a bit as well. But yeah, I think I'm going to give it a one because of that, because it does work like a, as such as sort of a fairy morality tale, as you guys said, it does hold up to that. Now, whether or not like that sort of has that facade has crumbled away in the 50, 60 years since, maybe so, but it still like stands as sort of a pillar of it. So Chris, I'm going to pull you with uh, when you reference Star Trek, but I'm going to reference Sopranos. But uh, mm-hmm. but in a sense, it's about there is a, we're breaking bad uh, Sopranos is that mm-hmm. that catharsis of living through the villain. And actually, uh, David Chase and Sopranos yeah. didn't have Tony getting killed at the end because he didn't want us to vicariously live through Tony Soprano to enjoy his comeuppance to forgive ourselves. That was part of the reason for it, mm-hmm. wherein we can enjoy um, uh, both uh, Walter White and Walter from this as living above the smarter than the situation they're in sure, sure. and getting punished for it. So we can live vicariously through their intelligence until, yeah. and then be like, Oh, I can't do that because I would get caught too. It's a, it's a fascinating psychological aspect to it. But uh, a, can I just, can I just say something about that? Cause you said the reason they didn't kill Tony Sopranos for that reason. The, the interesting thing though, and I don't mean to diverge, but it is no, but with Sopranos, I thought it ended perfectly because that paranoia and everything that's the rest of their lives until they die Mm -hmm. so i was gonna say he may have been trying to avoid that but by the same token living in that limbo for the rest of your life is a pretty horrible comeuppance Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the point but i get it so yeah i'm I'm just saying i'm giving indemnity a one because it touches those bases and i think still holds up well enough to the themes go ahead steve-o yeah uh yeah i mean i'm gonna give it a one as well i think the themes are really strong there's there is this interesting touching upon like uh, greed and how it affects people. And like, what is our greed even for? Like, I'm interested in like what Phyllis's greed is even actually for, right? Like she wants the money, but I'm not sure that that's what she wants. She wants something and she wants power, like right over her life, over her own life. And she doesn't have it. And like, that's a really fascinating thing that happens throughout the course of this is like, as she feels the power slipping away, her power with, Walter slipping away, she tries to call him out for it and like bring him to heel basically when she, you know, when she says, Oh, you could leave me or like now, now that we're, now that we can be together, you don't want to be with me or whatever, whatever it is. Like there's this really interesting take on, on that whole thing. And yeah, it is, it is certainly greed, but it's like, that's what I like about noir. It's not ever exactly what's on the surface. It's always what's like bubbling underneath and like what's, Yeah. And I think that this, you know, film does a fantastic job showing that. That said, I mean, I think you guys have mentioned a lot of good points already. Um, and that was my biggest one. So I'm going to give it a one and we can move on. Power. Well, we're moving on with you, Steve, with uh, Antagonist. I think Scott's got Antagonist. Oh, sorry. Scott has a deuce. Uh, nice uh, yes. double. Uh, uh, I, I, nice you're both S's. Hair. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, so this one's like a, like a little, not iffy, but like. A little more interesting than it seems on the surface because of the fact that you guys mentioned that, and I guess it follows suit with the next question. So, in theory, Walter's like, you know, you know a, a workaday guy, but like clearly he's been thinking about, like you said, like 
almost like a sort of like an offhanded game with himself. If I was going to commit insurance fraud for my own company, how would I do it? And then he's offered an opportunity with, of course, like a very classically set up Fen Tao character. So essentially, like Phyllis almost becomes an antagonist to him. I think she certainly is in the latter half. As you said, Steve, as a relationship sort of devolves and they like, they realize like they start splitting apart and they conspire to murder each other to get out of it, right? So like, and then of course he's got Keys, like ostensibly one of his good friends and boss, like figuring it all out. Like Keys knows exactly what happened. He doesn't know that it's Walter per se until the very end, but he knows that it's fraud. He knows that it's murder. He knows like how they, more or less how the crime was committed, right? So like, and Walter starts feeling the pressure of that as well. So I think it's sort of like a conglomeration, I guess I'll say, of, of both of those things, which again, like some of it might bleed over to the next question or two. But I think that was like the pressure that mounts upon ostensibly the main character. And I think it was really well handled because it's it's very nuanced, or at least it's not great, more gray area than it is black and white on the surface, uh, like you said, Sivo, uh, than it might appear to be, which of course is a hallmark of <laughs> all good noirs. So yeah, I think it certainly works well. I'm going to give it a one. And that's how I view the antagonist front. But if you guys might have some other interpretation or other things to add, certainly. But that's how I'm looking at it. And that's how I'm scoring it. It's, it's interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly. You know, like the more I think about it, the less I know, I guess, like any good noir. But um, that's why it's good. I, 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 I kind of want to go with uh, Phyllis as the antagonist because she is the antagonist to the person who's telling the story. Like he's very clearly telling the story, right? I mean, that's so he is his own hero in the story, mm-hmm. whether it's anti-hero or what he's the protagonist. Uh, you know, Walter is a protagonist of his own tale. That he's telling, which makes Phyllis by definition, I think the antagonist, uh, I'm with you. I would say to some degree, I guess like the people chasing them, but not, ever really like that never felt like an antagonist to me what felt antagonistic was their relationship you didn't feel edward g robinson was the catalyst to all of the uh negativity uh in uh walter's life he's watching the noose slowly slip around he's breathing down his neck and he's uh, he, so that, he figures out phyllis even though he doesn't figure out Walter, but by figuring out Phyllis, he's antagonizing Walter. I, I think that's that interesting. The, um, he's the traditional hero, but we're seeing it from Walter's point of view. Right. It's, he's, feel- Hank, he's Hank from Breaking Bad. These are, these are the same exact fucking move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he absolutely is. Um, he feels like, I, I guess, yeah, I guess he is a, a, a type of, like he's the indirect antagonism, right? I, I almost want to say, I'm like, I'm saying it's fifty-fifty to me between Phyllis and him, Steve. But Scott, Scott, who did you who did you consider the antagonist was? Like I said, fifty-fifty between Phyllis and Keys. Okay, they're the forces that combine that put pressure on, ostensibly, like I said, our protagonist Walter, and that that spurs him and makes him like question his decisions, makes him like you know make decisions that probably don't help him out as much. It it throws off his his like very. Uh, meticulously put together plan as it unfolds. So that's all I'm saying. And that's why I'm I, I can give him credit for that. Uh, probably solely because I don't, I think he's too strong, too strongly involved in the plot to be considered a supporting character. And like, you're right. He is that like, I, but like, it's almost like he's not the problem uh, in that, in terms of like how Walter feels keys is never the problem. He loves keys. Uh, but he may become, and he says problem. it all throughout. He's like, "Keys, you're gonna get me." But like, that's you know, 
I could accept that if like, and he's always trying to out, out fox him throughout and he does like he actually does. And there are definitely ways where Walter could get away with this, but he kind of, that would does, result in him murdering every other person involved. With yeah, it. exactly. He decides not to do that, I guess. <laughs> no, I, he only doesn't do it because he got shot first. <laughs> like, uh, that's, uh, it's, it's no, no, he, he has a, he has a, he finally has a little bit of a, conscience when he uh sends the kid away <laughs> or yeah. whatever his name was nino you know whatever it was yeah, yeah. Uh, you're right but I, i'm saying like but either way it's a very strong one mm-hmm. for me ahead, sorry scott what were you gonna say i just said go ahead chris ian did you have uh, anything to chime in on i just want to say oh, that i tell everybody else to talk edward j robinson is the hero of this work i don't think this would have been anywhere near as fascinating of a work if not for his performance as uh um he's it is so delightful to watch him be the bumbling inspector uh sort of uh, and again i think he's the full yeah you can say that phyllis is the directing but it's his unraveling of the whole system that causes the bad people to turn upon each other. So uh, uh, I'm, I just want to say that I love it. His performance is fantastic. I'll just reinforce that. I think it's both. He yeah. feels the, the, the pressure on both ends. So that's why I'm giving him, combining them to give them. Agree. See, this is, this is the one thing I was really stuck on because um, Walter comes into her house. Like first thing, like throws his hat down, lights up a cigarette. I mean, feeds the fish. He's, he's just this, got this audacity about him. And you know how, like a lot of times, you know, we, you know, society will say, "Oh, the girl was asking for it." He was asking for it. He was looking for this. <laughs> he, was, he was John Connery, James Bonding, it uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And he, it was know, a he, uncomfortable. he was. He was looking for this. He knew the system. He like in Brazil, he wasn't accepting promotion. Uh, he just he was looking for something. You know, he's stuck in this routine. So it's so like Edward G. Robinson. I don't really see him. I see him more. I guess we'll, I'll talk about him when we get to more of a supporting role because I definitely do see he's a hero, the hero in all this. Traditionally, be we're not getting it from his viewpoint. Yeah, but the thing, thing is, it's it's really kind of hard to pick an antagonist because I mean, these. I, I was actually going to say if we're going to pick a pet protagonist, I'm going to. I'm probably or an antagonist rather. I'm probably going to say that, you know, Walter and Phyllis, it's their own fucking fault. They did this all to themselves. I mean, so if I'm going to be, it's going to, it's going to have to Protagonist be. Protagonist and villain are kind of different things though. Like that. I mean, well, that, I, that's, I'm going to say. Uh, does though. All right, I'm yeah. going to say that they're both the anti, I'm going to say that Walter and Phillips are the antagonists. Walter's the antagonist of his own story that he's telling to you. I mean, yes. He is he most by his own petard, if you will, to a degree. Yes, he most certainly is. <laughs> Well, that was a forceful uh, clank by someone. All right. Uh, that drink, Eugene. So we'll see. Talk about the protagonist. Yeah. So I view it as Walter, played by Fred McMurray. And uh, you're absolutely right. Edward G. Robinson is amazing in this. And I think Fred McMurray does an equally good job uh, play to off him. each other extremely well. Yeah. He is just this like leading man that I don't, remember recall having seen this is the first time i'm seeing this movie i don't recall having seen any like you know humphrey bogart and shit is a guy that gets all the heat from uh from this era or around this era and like i think he's i think 
Fred McMurray is a better actor. Uh, almost everybody that you see act in, in that era seems like really stage play almost or like like wooden to a degree, like acting, like reading from a script. Uh, and oh, he seems you. like he's like comfortable at home on a set, you know, like it's just like something I don't no- normally see on movies from the 40s. And, and around that, like 30s and 40s, around that era, and I was really glad to see that. Like, I was like, "Oh, so there, like, this was possible to like make a movie like this." All right, cool. How come more people didn't do it? Uh, maybe it was hard or whatever. The, the acting style didn't evolve into something more natural uh, later on. But uh, just in terms of like the style, I loved it. And in terms of the protagonist, him like telling his own story you know, warts and all into like the, um, recorder for, I mean, it's so fucking the wild for Barton key, like for keys the next day. There's a, there's a lot. I was going to talk about this in dialogue, but I just mentioned it briefly here. What makes him so good is his interactions with everybody, but especially with keys. Like when they're together, there's like this electric and, and, and with Phyllis as well. I think that they have like a really good dynamic, but there's a point where, it kind of runs together where he like walks into her house for the first time and some, maybe the housekeeper or something says like they keep their liquor locked up. And he's like, I always have my keys I carry my own key or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh my God, it's terrible. but so good. <laughs> it's so, um, so like, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just really dug like a whole bunch of like everything about his character. It was very flawed and very messed up. And like in a way that I, I guess you normally, I guess you do see in noir movies, but like you don't see in a lot of movies from this era. And I really like that take on like, it's, it's an actual take on humanity, not like this binary system. And I, I love that. So I'm going to give protagonist a strong one. No, you're right. I mean, I'm just going to follow up with a few more things. I absolutely agree. He's very charismatic, of course, which goes a long way. And he plays like, I'll give a lot of credit, which we'll get to, of course, like you said, in dialogue and stuff, but what he's saying, it's almost like uh, Sorkin-esque, the way he presents himself, right? So he's very nuanced. Sorry, but we'll get to it, uh, right? But that means, as you said, as Fred McMurray plays it, right, you understand his character and you're sort of sympathetic to a large degree, even when he starts to devolving into this, like, you know, murderous plot, really, and gets sucked in by, by Phyllis. And, like, they both sort of are in a somewhat toxic relationship with each other, more or less. But, very yeah, and so, yeah. And so, like, it, it only gets worse as it goes on, for sure. Yeah. So like, but I'm saying you understand who he is, his motivations, where he's coming from, and he's just so natural with it and charismatic with everyone, and especially with Edward G. S. Keys for sure. That yeah, I'm giving him a very strong one. He's an interesting, well done, well rounded protagonist. So, no, I, I think he was phenomenal for all the points you guys said. So I, I'm not probably gonna add anything to it. He was a piece of shit, but he was a good protagonist. Um, but I also have to say one thing, and this is totally going to age me. So yeah, grandpa, I watched this from, with my mom as a, when I was a kid because we'd stay. When it came out in the theaters. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. My mom wasn't even bored then. You set me um, up for that one. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, I, my mom used to work till eleven o'clock. We used to stay up all night and watch like noir and horror films. But when I was a kid, I used to watch this show, My Three Sons, and it was kind of like a sitcom from the 60s you know a lot of white people um so this is the first time i saw fred mcmurray in a serious role so i was like it was kind of it kind of blew me away because i'm like what the fuck i'm used to as this wholesome dad and here he is this piece of shit now so uh even though i didn't quite phrase it that way so yeah i'm gonna give him one all right very nice 
All right. Well, I'm going to talk about signature characters. One, I since I didn't put Phyllis into a thing, I know it's me. Screw that. I'm just going to say her thousand yard stare was amazing. But I have to say that uh, Nino was a nothing character. The boss had a humorous moment, but I actually had quite a lot of sympathy for Lola because uh, Edward G. Robinson, as great of a character as I think he is, he is the old bumbling uh, detective stereotype. Lola here is the moral center, even though she's not perfect by any means uh, either. And I think she does a good job of providing that hope that would be lost in later neo-noir works. So I'm probably going to give it a one, although I could be convinced down to a zero if anyone has a good argument. No, I mean, like I'm probably going to go along with it. Like, even though I did, like, of course, if we say that keys is like a secondary character, he's like by far the best and most important one, but I think I can, I, I can get away with cutting it up almost like he's a secondary character, but he's also an antagonist as we already just talked out to Walter. Right. But I think your the Lola point is really good because she might not be perfect, but she's the most innocent one. Like she's nothing, she figures it out even, or she very highly suspects slash has known that uh, Phyllis murdered her original mother, like, and then married, uh, uh, George, whatever his name is, like her father, right? She knows that Phyllis is up to no good is basically a black widow. She just can't quite prove it, but she's for sure uh, certain of it. And she's just trying, again, to live her life. And, has, you know, she's she's not conspiring. She's not doing any crimes. She's just trying to, like, uh, hold the light up to it and be like, this is what's happening. Please, someone help me. Like, can anyone see? Like, I'm telling you. Well, someone pay attention <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, someone help this poor woman. But, uh, yeah. So you're right. It's not a huge cast either. And her lover, Nino, is like, fine. I actually thought he got a little more, slightly more interesting uh, later on in like the latter third of the film, we'll say. Well, like, he was still finally there. And so, yeah. So maybe I'll give like a little bit of half credit. Like I said, split up the difference for keys, for sure, Lola. And that all equals a one for me. So I'll tell you what, there's something that we used to do on this show where it was like, if any of these, if I love any of these supporting characters, it's going to get a one. And the only reason that this is getting a one is for Lola. All right, yeah, that's fair. I don't give a shit about Nino. The, her, uh, Phyllis's husband is literally uh, listed as Mr. Dijkson. <laughs> he has no first name in the cast list. Three, maybe. Yeah. Keys, I, I count as a, an antagonist. So I'm not going to, like, we, we counted as an antagonist before. Phyllis, the same. Walter protagonist. So yeah, the only one of these supporting characters that I really give a shit about is Lola. And she does a phenomenal job in this. Uh, certainly enough. The, uh, the actor is Jean Heather and um, she is, you know, has this whole little arc of her own. She has this whole like um, coming to terms with the fact that her stepmother, a killed her mom and B like killed her dad. Like, you know, it's, she has this whole like wrestling with, uh, and it's also manipulating her boyfriend. Whatever, like the, the circumstances. Her boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And 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 she thinks it might have been him. Like, there's this whole shit. So, like, I love that character. I think she did a phenomenal job. I'm going to give her one for that. Yep. Right on. Now, the, now, I'm really glad that I saved Keys for supporting because now that you guys brought up Lola, I think it's funny, the character with the least amount of agency and the most sympathetic and the person who not directly has the most agency, but with regard to being like the man kind of agency are the two that basically figure it out. Like if you combine them, they put all the pieces together. And I think that makes a really interesting dynamic. So just 
because and I'm glad I saved it for this because I'm like, all right, I was like trying to figure out where did keys oh. fit in. And then you when you guys brought up Lola, I'm like, yep, this totally makes sense. So I'm giving it a very strong one. Awesome. Well, Chris, keep talking about dialogue. Now this one's really difficult because on the one hand the dialogue uh, see? But yeah. on the other hand, baby, I couldn't stand baby fucking hearing baby one more fucking baby time, baby, 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 baby. Well, baby basically, baby, the, the, the best dialogue baby was from Edward G. Robinson, baby, and his dialogue, <laughs> I loved baby, but I just hated the fucking baby. It was grating on my nerves. That's your point. <laughs> that fucking baby, I have to give this a zero, baby. There's just no way around it. Interesting. Right. Well, listen Interesting. to me, baby, if you will, because I just have a short, but perhaps like it's Raymond Chandler dialogue, as we mentioned. And I think that combined with the natural delivery, like, okay, you're saying it graded on you, Chris. This is like the most prototypical er noir dialogue there ever can be, but it works because they don't oversell it, because they keep it subtle, they keep it natural. So, yeah, like you've seen it parodied and like satirized so many times, but it had to have come from something. So I'm saying it worked for me. Like, I get what you're saying. I noticed it, but it, it worked. It, I felt it made sense for the characters to be saying that. And especially when he's doing, you know, his, the voiceover shit that's no, that Noir is known for. So I'm giving it a one because of that. And I'm not, you know, saying that maybe doesn't or convinces you like totally, but I was expecting to be like, oh, it's going to be stilted, whatever. But no, I think it worked because of the way the script and the actors combined to, make, to sell it to a very, very large degree and make it believable and natural and that these characters are doing and saying these things. So, and I agree with you mostly, but this is, this is out of the, the Ian playbook. Sorry. Ian. But after a while, the babies started taking me out of it. It was, it had to, sounds like a personal problem. I, I, I agree to a certain extent with you. It just didn't bother me as much as it did. Uh, I love film noir. I feel, and I think that Bruce Campbell stole his entire shtick from this movie. Um, uh, but however, it's so drenched it and the important part is that parody would have sort of to your point would have overdone it a little bit this is overdone but earnestly like they're trying to make it sound like a dime store novel and they 100 percent did and I, I, I yeah this is a a personal uh bias of mine i love this shit and it worked, it, it, it affected me perfectly. So I'm giving it a very strong one. So I wasn't going to try and convince you to change your score, Chris, but now I might. Correct me if I'm wrong, but she never calls him any pet names, right? Throughout the movie. He just calls her baby. I think she says honey once or twice. I don't think she does. And here's why. I mean, she might, and I might be wrong about this, but here's my argument. I think that them hammering on the baby, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I'll just say this. No, one for dialogue, I love all the dialogue. The babies, I get, I get why it's annoying, but I think what they're trying to do is show pretty. that he actually has like, like feelings, and she's a sociopath or even a psychopath and who that's t- can't actually evolve feelings, right? So like, he's like giving her a pet name, like, kind of doting on her at, at every move, and he is driven crazy when he realizes that she's fucking a psycho or a sociopath at least, and you know, it makes the has these crimes of passion. But I think that what it was trying to be was like, Hey, he's the one that actually has emotions. So he's going to like have a pet name for her. He's going to fucking call her baby all the time or whatever. And she is going to be like very more removed. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't know what the word I was trying to look for was. Uh, and now that was just an idea that I that came to my head about four, five and a half seconds ago, so not very well yeah. formed. Uh, he makes the, uh, the easy mis- mistake of early men with uh, conflating lust and love he, and, uh, and, and dies because of it. Indeed. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, that I am going to change my score because I agree with you. I love noir. But the babies took me out of it. But then I realized he's a fucking sociopath too, and his We're babies playing each other. But but the whole thing, his babies are about as sincere as her saying, "I love you, Walter. I love you, Walter." I don't believe either one of these two assholes. They're both sociopaths. They both think they're smarter than they are. That's the whole point, Chris. I think at the end. So of the day. so yeah. In that context, the fucking grading babies but works. Are are you saying he's basically gaslighting her into making uh, her think he loves her by? <laughs> Constantly referring to baby. I agree with Steve-O. Was it Steve-O who said that they don't really have a conception of it? So he thinks he does. She knows she doesn't love him. He thinks he does love her, but it's, so, but he doesn't, it's very superficial. They're both sociopaths. Although so the hole. yeah. So yeah, I'll give it a one. You convinced me, Steve. Nice work. Nice. All right. Scott, yes. onto you with style. Motherfucking one, man. Like, again, if you're going to point to a noir film and be like, this is what noir style and cinematography looks like, this is a motherfucking fantastic one to do. It's got, like, it's got the chiaroscuro. Like, it has all the elements that you know and familiar with, or at least that are taken from noir films. You know, the shadows. Of course, it's in black and white. And so, like, a little bit grainy here and there. And just the framing, the fucking lighting, of course. That's what noir is. It's black you know the dark shadows against the wall like and uh fred mcmurray has to happens to be a very tall gentleman so when he's walking on a hallway or like in the street or whatever like his shadow casts a long shadow and of course they did it all on purpose but the whole movie is like that phyllis you know like half in the shade when she's in the she's about to shoot him like the whole way through and i was super impressed with it and the soundtrack also is amazing so i'll let you guys maybe expand upon that but i'm just saying cinematographer wise billy wilder as this one, this film being one of, if not the uh, quintessential noirs, mm-hmm. then uh, you have to give it a one, I think. So with that, I will. I yeah, thought I mean, the I'm... soundtrack was amazing. And I thought it was an incredibly paced film. And I love noir. It's getting a one. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm going to give it a one too. It's, it's really impressive. One of the things that really s- stuck out to me was, and I, I didn't even, I haven't thought about this scene in, however long it's been since probably a month after we did the apartment. But do you guys remember the scene with all the desks? Yep. They did like yeah, a very yeah. early oh, yeah. version of that scene. In this like and that. I was like, holy shit, that's the scene from the apartment. Like my fucking hat flew off my head. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it was really impressive. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, yeah, the the cinematography, terrific. The uh, music was amazing. And um, I have to give it full, absolute full credit for style. Uh, like you said earlier, it was like proto Sorkin, basically. Uh, Billy Wilder has this like quick dialogue, and um, and I guess that's probably down to Raymond Chandler too. But like has this very quick dialogue and 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 very like this patter that the characters have, and they're very clever in the same way that Sorkin's always very clever. Well, the shots as well is all the same. Yeah. So I think I mentioned all the thing. I already said the always have my own keys line. <laughs> so I think I mentioned everything that I had written down that I wanted to say. And uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a strong one. Yeah, I was, I'm a huge fan of film noir. This is, I, 
I'm kind of going to the next question, which is recommendation, but I think that this is the perfect example of a film noir, uh, of a traditional film noir to put on the, um, on the AFI. So, uh, Steve, would you like to take over for me on a recommendation? I completely agree with you. Uh, this is a perhaps the best film noir movie I've ever seen, at least up there, up there. in my estimation. And, you know, I, not that I've seen every single one ever, but I've seen a lot of the really good ones. And this movie, which I had not seen before and had been hearing about for years, was fucking awesome. And I'm like, I was really glad to see, like, I know I said this earlier, but I was really glad to see a movie from like the 40s, 50s or earlier, you know, like we've been watching a bunch of those movies that have been kind of disappointing to me lately from the AFI of late in the last few months or whatever. So I was glad to see one like really be top notch and really serve its genre well. So I'm going to give it a strong one for recommendation. I mean, I'm disappointed in the fact that I did not get to see this when I took film classes. I didn't get to see this one. Like, they didn't show it to me. Steve was freezing, so hopefully that's okay. But I'll just keep speaking. Yeah, so having seen it now, fuck yeah, I recommend it. So it's number 29, so it just scrapes on the top 30. That's fine. You can maybe put it a little higher, a little bit here and there, but I will definitely recommend it. Full full marks, definitely see some of them, especially a friend of noir. Probably seen it anyways, but if not, if you like any kind of noir in general or like, you know, murder mysteries, Definitely check it out. Uh, I'm going to give a little backstory here. Uh, it's funny is that this is actually based on a true story. A journalist uh, in New York basically attended a, and Steve-O is. Uh, Morgan is the host now. Hey, hey. Steve-O just got removed from the plot of the film. Of our yes. review. So uh, <laughs> we'll continue recording here. Anyway, uh, so basically this woman uh, uh, had her lover kill uh, her husband and got an insurance thing on it. And, Basically, a journalist was like, this is such an interesting story. This would make a great novel. And they made a novel based on it. And then Bill Waters was like, this would make a great fucking movie. And they made a movie on it. And I fully recommend this. And I think it's a phenomenal thing. So, Chris, do you still have to go for recommendation? Yeah. I'm, yeah this, this is never a question in my mind. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even No, no. Okay. I, I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm going to. We were trying to figure out what to do this week. We kept circling around this. I'm like, let's just fucking do Double Indemnity. Because I remember seeing it as a kid. We all love noir. And I hadn't seen this in a long time. And it's really funny. I forgot about the baby, 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 which grated on my nerve. But once I realized, yeah, we're dealing with a couple of sociopaths whose sincerity is is about as thin as a holy wafer. And about as sustainable too has as much sustenance to it. Yeah, and uh, you know, and to uh, back up something somebody said, it was refreshing to actually see something on the AFI because Beth and I just started watching Community. Yes, all right, uh, we just started watching it, and uh, Abad, oh, fuck, um, Ahmed, Ahmed, Abed, sorry, um, is really big into pop culture, and he keeps referring to Mash. And the movie MASH left such a bad taste in my mouth that I have to remember to go back and watch the series because it was so, because the movie MASH was so awful. Mm-hmm. So coming back and seeing, you know, this film was just like, oh, okay. So I, there is something from my childhood that still holds up that I remember. So I got you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, go on. So uh, we've, Given this a 10, which I agree with, I think it's one of the better uh, film noirs and deserves its place on. Uh, if I Is Billy Wilder one of the better directors of Amer- American cinema? At this point, I have to say yes. He only made 
one film that I didn't like, and he made two, at least possibly three, if I can mm-hmm. think of them, that I did think were quite strong and quite good from the era. So yeah, huh? I would say yes. Abed, that's his name. Yeah. Abed. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, Billy Wilder, what's uh, one of the best uh, directors the in uh, uh, American cinema? Yeah, this is the. I'm trying to think of the rest of his catalog, but yeah, I mean, I agree. He did Apartment, which was great. If you haven't, I didn't. You know, it's really funny. I haven't seen the Apartment, but I, but I fucking hated Some Like It Hot. But I knew he was better than that movie. So, um, so yeah, it's Sunset Um, Boulevard too. Which, real quickly, is you haven't seen yet, which is higher than this on the AFI. But yeah, and I look forward to seeing. Mm -hmm. All right. Well. we're going to go investigate uh, the murder of Stephen Ramosi. <laughs> His uh, strange I'm Jonathan Ian Manzer, here with Christopher Morgan. See you later, baby. And <laughs> Scott Thurlow. There's always another angle, see? Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Editing and engineering by Stephen Ramosi. Music by Christopher Morgan. Check us out on YouTube and iTunes for the shows, and on Facebook and Twitter for updates.